My name is Lex Dad, and I'm a local Darug man. We share country up here in the Blue Mountains with the Gundangara people. I'd like to pay respects to our elders, both past and present. I'd like to pay respects to our young people who are our emerging elders. I'd like to pay respects to Pemawiyunga, Mother Earth, and Father Sky, Biami. And I say in our link, local Darug language, Warami Mirega Darug Nyura. Welcome, friends, to Darug country and Yanana Budrigumara. May we all walk with good spirit, with patience, humility, and respect for one another. Didgeridgora, and thank you. and the Orion Experience. How good, um, I like those songs. Yes, not yeah. sure if anyone was listening to the lyrics in that second one, but they were a little bit, little bit creepy, a bit problematic, which uh, but what leads a, me what to... But what a beat. What Sorry, a, did I ruin you? Just, you're going to do <laughs> such a good segue. <laughs> yeah. gonna, oh, that's fine. I'm which sorry. I was going to say, which leads me to the sort of theme for the rest of the show, because uh, normally in this time slot, there would be Blast from the Past, Back to the Future. Yep. Um, but we are taking over for the next hour and a half or so, um, and we'll just be continuing talking about books um, in the problematic vein, yeah. And there are so many of them. So many. <laughs> I actually yes, started doing are. research, and, and, I was and like, so my childhood's been authors. destroyed, basically. Yeah. Like, every author ever that I've read is, like, racist or has sexually harassed someone, or mm. it's, it's a rabbit hole once you start looking, isn't it? Mm. Well, it, Kath has done a lot of research to prepare for this one, well, so maybe do you want to start us? Or? Well, I mean... I actually stopped because I got depressed. It I, is a bit depressing. Because, you know, you hear, for example, Dr. Seuss. So a lot, Dr. Seuss, and I didn't do a lot of research into this, but I know that, um, uh, you know, famous for Cat in the Hat and what's the one fish, blue fish and things, but then mm-hmm. had a lot of um, blackface and uh, there was a lot of problematic stuff. And Tintin as well. And Tintin, I mean, I, I've picked up some Tintin comics and they're at our house and then did some research and turns out that Tintin... Uh, his first two, one was a, when he goes to the Congo, um, good old Tintin civilised the natives, so that was nice yeah. of him, uh, and they worshipped him because he helped them. So Jeez. then uh, the second one, Land of the Soviets, was full of anti-communist propaganda. But to be fair, the 30 books he did after that were fine. <laughs> all, all 30 of them? Well, you personally uh, read and vetted? Well, al- allegedly, according to my research um, this morning. But a- And then and because then I started thinking about Roald Dahl, and Roald Dahl, he was a terrible person. <laughs> In no, what way? Well, uh, the thing is, I, I'd heard that he was anti-Semitic, because I remember, I think, a few years ago, his, I think his family came and apologised, mm. and uh, they were going to p- reprint a pound coin or something with a picture of him, and they decided not to, the Royal Mint, mm. because he was a giant racist basically and it's not even like subtle racism or you know maybe of its time you know how how, uh, and and not that racism is ever acceptable to be clear but you know there was a time that maybe it was it was more likely that these things would be said and accepted but he was just really awful um i'll see if i can find some of the things we probably don't need to repeat too much (laughs) we've got two hours so here's a list of recall reading that he had made comments like sort of in the vein of like well, Hitler had the right idea. Yeah, and really blatant, Quite, yeah. blatantly anti-Semitic too, yeah. and not sort of in a, you know, this is what you physically look like way. In a, and he said, oh, I'm anti-Israel, and I, um, it, you know, linking them to financial institutions and control them, really, really problematic things. Um, and, and it just keeps going on. And, and then, so in 2020, his family apologised, and they said, you know, we apologise for the lasting and understandable hurt caused by his statements. They're incomprehensible for us, you know, they said in contrast to the man we contrast to the man we know and they can help us remind us of the lasting impact of words and some jewish organizations uh accepted it and others didn't they said oh well it's interesting isn't it 30 years <laughs> to make an apology but they waited until lucrative deals were signed with hollywood isn't that interesting mm. you know and it's i grew up we read I read every Roald Dahl book. I, I know, I was a huge Roald Dahl fan. And and every and it's still I mean, I just read uh, Going Solo earlier this year because I, I think as a as a person he's really interesting too, like his time in the war and you know, I've I my memory of books 
isn't great, but I still remember when he had his adenoids pulled out. Do you remember that? And they pulled them through his nose. Oh, it was such a... V- and I remember it as a child I squirming. remember when he, he got in the car accident and his yeah, nose and was like sliced chopped off, off basically. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and, and so he's a brilliant writer, brilliant uh, imagination. Like the BFG, you know... All of those books, w- we just devoured them and read them again and again. And then, yeah, I think it's so difficult when someone has so clearly made like such an important contribution to literature, like children's literature. I feel like uh, you can't really deny his impact and like the lasting legacy of that. And still, you yeah. know, like I, those are really important books to lots of kids. And like I know when I was growing up, like Matilda and things like that, yeah. like they were just so important to me. But it's it's really hard to reconcile knowing like what we know now. With, um, yeah, like kind of the place that he held in my childhood. <coughs> Harry Potter. <coughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure we have a lot of time to talk about Harry Potter. <laughs> but, but this is what I mean, yeah. you know. To have a whole show. And, and yeah. I actually d- Googled, you know, I just wrote problematic books. And there were so many. And, I mean, I've just spoken about some, some children's uh, authors. And, but, you know, you, I actually went to one and it was like, okay, this um, Charles Dickens treated his wife terribly. Ernest Hemingway was a terrible person and then basically every like every I guess old fashioned writer more or less was on this list was like racist 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 and it was it was really well known writers that people like Isaac Asimov Mm -hmm. um, uh, Yeah, I read read Foundation recently actually and there was uh, not till the very end too I was like wow how refreshing to read a sci-fi from the 60s that isn't Ursula Le Guin and isn't racist you know because I feel like she's pretty good at that stuff but not everybody was <laughs> um and yeah it wasn't till like the very end when there was some use of racial slurs or something and I'm just thinking like thousands of years in the future you the future you envision still like this utopian kind of civilization is still like this you know what I mean like I think it speaks to like the, the limits on your imagination I think when you're so socially regressive i guess i don't, I I don't think i don't think it's necessarily unreasonable to suggest that racism may still exist a thousand no, years totally, in the future but, but is there a need to use racial slurs to yeah, demonstrate yeah. that that's happening in a thousand yeah. years in the future and i would say probably not yeah. yeah and i think as well what i'm realizing too i'm seeing um just going back to Roald Dahl but I think a lot of these authors I'm seeing them through a new lens like I I always found his messages quite good you know Matilda it's a girl and she learns to read and she's smart you know there were really good messages in it um or that there were you know being cheeky and being naughty but in a fun way and Mm. being kind and you know think of James and the Giant Peach and how he befriended all these I guess creatures and I don't know there was such a magic and joy and then looking at this and someone's made a point that the witches is general misogyny and someone said um it was an article analyzing his work throughout his work evil domineering ugly fat smelly woman are his favorite villains and then i i I started thinking about it and i was like actually that's true in a lot of his works Mm. and it it's just i don't think it's true in do you remember the twits like well that's true they were both ugly and smelly and fat (laughs) yes and there's specifically (laughs) a passage in the beginning about how if you have a lovely personality and you're kind and your your personality will shine through no matter what features you have and i think there's always look lovely yeah Yeah. i I think there's a picture of a woman and she's um you know i think she's probably this plays into the anti-semitism too i'm realizing but she has like maybe a bit (laughs) of a she has a bit of a hooked nose and i think she's like a bit plump and whatever but she's she's smiling and like the the point of the image is that she's a, a beautiful lovely individual to interact with mm. and then on the next page it has you know the picture of the twits and the description of how they're horrible and nasty and that shines through in their appearance so like i don't think always but yeah actually it is a, a pretty the witches is a good example of yeah but isn't that awful to look back at and then think i don't know because I, I suppose i i looked up to him maybe not as a hero maybe that's too strong but i really looked up to Rod Dahl, and i've got you know because i've read a little bit of his adult work i've got you know the omnibus at home and I've read a couple of them. And now I'm just thinking, how can you, how can I read Roald Dahl knowing that he was a really terrible person? Well, that's a good question. Um, can you do that? Do you think that you can separate those things? I mean, it's something that's been really important to you and you've grown up with those books. Um, if you don't read the books that actually are problematic, does that mean that it's okay to read the books that aren't problematic from the same author? What do you think? And that's the thing, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it depends. I don't think there's, um, yeah, in terms of like consuming art that's been made by someone who's problematic, I don't think that there's any sweeping general statement you can make about whether it's ethical or not. Uh, I think it's really like you've got to take it case by case. And I think in the case of someone like Roald Dahl, I would look at, well, what's what's his estate doing with the money that 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you buy a Roald Dahl book new, what where is that money going? Because Roald Dahl himself is dead. <laughs> you know, like I I don't see it as financially supporting him as an individual, but it is important to me what what his name now stands for and represents and and yeah. And he never came out and apologized. Like a lot of this was late eighties, and mm. I mean, uh, racism was pretty blatant like through forever really mm. and it still is i mean i'm not saying that it's lessened but i suppose people are sort of more it's called out a lot more i feel although maybe that's the the circles that i'm in um but you know there's often this idea of oh it's of its time you mm. know and and uh, you know women were depicted this way in a book because that's how women were treated or you know this is because you know and there's sort of these excuses made and and, and is it I don't know. D- it, for example, I mean, and, and we'll get into this in a bit, but there are some modern authors that have been accused of doing awful things, and we will talk about, yes, Harry Potter. <laughs> and, and that one feels a little bit easier for me to go, well, no, I can't read that because they believe this. Whereas, you know, if it's an older... I mean, Roald Dahl never apologised. And he didn't die. When did he die? Not that long ago, but it wasn't that. Not too sure, yeah. It wasn't yeah. incredibly recently. That's what I mean, and he but still didn't apologise. There's a big difference because J.K. Rowling is out there in the world right now espousing those beliefs financially supporting people with similar beliefs and causes with similar beliefs and using her her sort of political power to lobby for uh, you know like things that she believes and that we obviously don't agree with mm. um whereas yeah Roald Dahl is not in a position to do that mm. and I feel like so there is a difference between consuming like if you were going to read Harry Potter and buy copies of Harry Potter and support Harry Potter that feels to me a bit different than, you know, like reading your childhood copy of Matilda or, yeah. you know. But it, it obviously, it does sour the experience for me. Like, I haven't really revisited much Roald Dahl since. No, I haven't either. No. So, a number a number of libraries in different places around the world and bookshops, for example, have taken those kind of books off the shelves and don't sell those mm. um, old Roald Dahl books or, or any Any um, Roald Dahl. Exactly. Um, is that really different from uh, people on the far right wanting to ban books in the US, for example, like The Handmaid's Tale and that kind of thing? Well, I think you have to look at the reason behind it. Why Why are they wanting to ban The Handmaid's Tale? But removing a book from a library or, or refusing to shock it, stock it in your shelves, like in your shop, is not the same as banning a book. Which because way? you can still access that book. And it would sensationalise uh, it. You buy it online. You, there would be yeah. bookstores out there that would still stock it. You know, it's not like a an actual blanket ban but if, if everyone pulled the books from their shops and libraries then effectively well, isn't that you reflective would, you would of what everyone wants then if everyone had done it so then what's do you know what i mean but that like doesn't that doesn't necessarily make it right just because everybody wants to do it it could still be ethically wrong it's democratic <laughs> <laughs> but if, if you think about the, fu- the far right and wanting to ban books often that's because they're talking about things that are against christianity in their mind isn't it Sure, but I don't see how that's different from what you're saying about Roald Dahl, for example. It's something you don't agree with what? and you don't support. Being a racist. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but I mean... I know what you're trying to say, yeah. and it's annoying me because I, I know what you're trying to say, but my back just... Oh, my teeth just clenched. I was yeah. like, how can you compare being a racist? Yeah. Yeah, I just... I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a tricky subject, and I don't certainly don't have an answer for it either, but um, I do think pe- we need to be careful... Uh, with this approach of uh, there's of of taking books um, out of circulation or of not um, reading certain authors because of certain things that that can work both ways and there's people on all sides of the political spectrum who can use reasons <coughs> to ban books or to pull books off shelves or to take them out of libraries. Mm. Um, I agree. I think it does need to be judged on a uh, an individual basis, mm. um, and it's hard to. You know, even even books where there may be um, uh, problematic material in them, they can still be amazing books. They can still be beautifully written and tell a fantastic story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, you know, it could be just a matter of really two or three sentences sometimes in a whole book mm. that cause it to be pop- problematic. Well, like George Orwell, Down and Out in Paris and London. Yeah, and and I mean, I love George Orwell, and and I I remember we uh, we had. Um, uh, Tim was, was someone who rented a studio at Naughty and he really loved Kurt Vonnegut and we said, oh, and he said he hadn't read much George Orwell so we recommended a few and he came back and said oh you know I really liked it he's a great writer but what about that anti-semitism and I went what mm. and it was it wasn't anything like Roald Dahl's I mean not that you can really compare because anti-semitism is bad no matter how you look at it but um, it, I don't know it's 
it seems like a lot of books from that sort of time period were, were just, I don't know, flavoured with. I don't. I well, don't and and anti-Semitism in particular in the you know the twenties and thirties mm. in Europe was particularly virulent and was very commonplace. And unfortunately, it still is in some places um, in some communities today as well. well so, but sorry. but I mean, are we okay to be able to judge books that were written a hundred years ago? from a completely different perspective if, if you're surrounded by a, a culture in which which um, there's anti-semitism or you know discrimination against minorities or against different genders that kind of thing it it doesn't doesn't it make sense that you would expect artists to incorporate that in their work and not necessarily in a way that you would agree with but it, it makes sense that that's kind of they're, they're almost absorbing that culture and that's they're they're representing that culture in their work and just because that culture has changed 100 years later, are we confident that we can say this is no good and this person, no one should read their book anymore? Well, and that's what I find interesting because if you look at George Orwell, <coughs> he, the, the um, I guess, experiments he did with class, you know, w w with the road to Wigan Pier, with, with down and out in Paris and London, he really uh, experienced what it was like to be poor. He really challenged the status quo and he did speak out a lot. So I think he did some amazing things in terms of, I don't know, challenging the status quo, helping the, the um, where am I going with this? Uh, you know, in challenging classlessness, he was, it, it was helping bring about equality. So on one hand, he's done some really amazing things as well as, you know, just being a fantastic writer. But then on the other hand, you know, and how can you balance this out? And is there, is there a, well, he was only racist in one book. So, you know, I, and it just it makes me feel really uncomfortable I, th um, I think there's also, unfortunately, a tendency for people sometimes to excuse authors they love mm, and definitely. to very quickly attack authors they don't like. Um, and I think that happens in, in film as well and in other mm. aspects of art and culture. It, it seems to be a bit different. Musicians, yeah. that can very much happen. People who are... Um, Michael Jackson kind of comes to mind in that respect. I know people who love Michael Jackson are obsessed with his music um, and... Uh, they more often than not are quite quick to defend Michael Jackson from some of the allegations that were around about him. But I've also heard people who don't like Michael Jackson's music at all very more than welcome, more than happy to just start talking about those allegations. Um, mm. And I sometimes find that it kind of depends a bit on whether you actually like an artist or not, how critical you can be. And I think that's a little bit hypocritical to me. Mm. I don't know if there's um, a way that we can kind of be more rational in that approach and um, treat everyone in the same way. Um, but, mm. yeah, I don't know. I think it's just important to consume, like, all, for all the media you consume, to approach it with critical thinking in mind. Like, I think it, there's so much value in reading or watching or listening to something that you find really challenging. You mm. know, maybe that there are parts of it you love and that uh, you agree with, like, wholesale, mm. but then there are parts that maybe you don't that challenge your way of thinking like I think it's important you know like maybe reading those Orwell books that have uh, every now and then something that's anti-semitic like not that that's good but it's important for you to be able to recognize that yourself rather than being told well you shouldn't read it because it's got that thing in it you mm. know like if you if you read it and then come to that conclusion on your own isn't that better for your own sort of personal growth and and whatever than just being told not to engage with those things you know i, I, I mean think that's quite limiting it's important to call these things out i think definitely because yeah. and i i mean i think Catherine and i feel the same way about orwell that we think that he's a, a fascinating character and has written some remarkable books but it also it, you have to remember that he is a human being just like everyone else and he grew up in a certain milieu a certain you know part of society and he absorbs certain ideas and um, we can accept that they're wrong now um, and they probably were wrong back then as well, I think it's fair to say. And we should never you know, tolerate racism or anti-Semitism. But um, as long as you can appreciate that people are flawed and that people will sometimes do the wrong thing and as long as it doesn't become a recurring theme or that they have take the opportunity if it's available to apologise, mm. then I think there's room to be able to accept that work and, and, and those people still. It's the people... And I think Alex made the point that kind of J.K. Rowling's to me with their trans-exclusionly radical feminism who uh, won't back down and really almost um, double down mm. Mm, on that issue that really seems to cause uh, a problem for me. 
And, and you were saying uh, just yesterday, Alex and I were talking about Jermaine Greer, mm. and you know because the female eunuch is is quite significant and yeah. it's a significant feminist text. Exactly, yeah. and I, and I've seen interviews with Jermaine Greer on a talk show with two men who are just ruthlessly bullying her mm. and making fun of her, and she just she's she's done amazing things for the feminist movement. But then you were saying you saw a well, you tell the story about yeah, the new copy. Um, I have a newer copy of uh, the female eunuch that I probably bought, uh, like, I don't know, maybe 2015 or 2016, so it was quite a while ago, um, and it has, uh, like, a foreword that she's written sort of reflecting back on um, the feminist movement and... In only four words. <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, that's all right, and, and where feminism is now, and it's so blatantly transphobic and that was really challenging for me i couldn't get past yeah. uh, i couldn't move on and read the rest of the book and sort of make up my own decision about it because you know i think there's a she says something to the effect of like you know uh and these days when there are men chopping off bits of themselves and masquerading as women like it's yeah. it's really derogatory and disrespectful and uh, you know just really unpleasant to read um yeah from a person that like you said was very significant in the feminist movement especially in australia and yeah um i just couldn't get past it personally but and it's hard because that text was so significant but instead of leaving it as it was to come back and be like also here's some things that you know i just also i hate trans women it's like just (laughs) stop ruining things yeah (laughs) Yeah. or you know thank you for showing me how you really feel and now i won't buy your books anymore yeah yep Paperback Riser. Uh, that was Kylie, the last song that we played there. Oh, Kylie, I love you so much. <laughs> um, I just can't get you out of my head, which is the name of that song. Apologies. And it's also true. Uh, apologies to Madison, who told us before that she literally can't get that song out of her head when she hears it. So hopefully you're not listening to this, Madison. But um, Don't one of my favourite Don't cause a locomotion. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and what were the other two songs we were listening to? Well, Kat? of course, we had the legend, Dolly Parton, uh, who is just golden. And if, if something comes out about her, I just don't think I can go on anymore. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. I, I just think she's wonderful. And uh, New Zealand drag down under drag race, race winner Kidamine went to Dollywood yesterday and Dolly Parton happened to be there. Oh, really? I know. Oh. Couldn't Living you believe dream. it? I know. At Dollywood with oh, Dolly that's Parton. That's amazing. It's <laughs> pretty amazing. Oh. Um, so jealous. So jealous. Mm. And then, of course, we had Johnny Cash, mm. who, um, that's the live. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. That was pretty good, actually. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so live from Folsom Prison, um, which, not prism, <laughs> prison. Mm. Uh, and, and he's, uh, yeah, I, I love Johnny. Johnny's yeah. fantastic. Um, and, I mean, that one, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a segue. It's a little bit of a reach. But, <laughs> you know, he's writing, he, I mean, he was arrested for drugs, I think, and was put in a holding cell or something. But he writes the the Folsom Prison Blues from the perspective of a prisoner who's, who's committed murder. Um, and, and, you know, he writes it from a perspective of something that he's, he's, he can't fully understand. And I think that's a really interesting one in terms of problematic authors or even music or uh, art, um, you know, and I guess... Uh, what what comes to mind for me is is Honeybee by Craig Sylvie, which I absolutely loved. Um, and it's it's set in Melbourne, and it's the story um, of a. Y- I I don't know if I want to give. I don't think it gives it away. It, 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 we see we don't know their gender, um, but they they're a trans woman, um, and they're basically really suicidal, and it's really hard. And it's from their perspective, um, and just how they've been really bullied for wanting to be who they are. Um, and Sylvie was uh, he wrote Jasper Jones as well so he was a known well-known Australian writer and he wrote this book and uh, being a cisgendered man himself and, and not um, having that experience and there was a lot of criti- criticism for that um, and he uh, he uh, I read up a lot about it because I I really enjoyed the book and I thought it was really interesting um, but of course I mean I don't know what it's like to experience that and so you know I wasn't sure sort of how I don't know on the nose it was but um he apparently he met with a lot of people from the community um and and sort of asked what was it like growing up and what was this and this is what I've written about and do you think this would be right and so you know is is I guess what I'm saying in a rather roundabout way is is it okay to write or create something um fr- from the point of view of someone that you can't possibly understand well on that basis uh there would be no such genre as historical fiction so take, for example, one of your favourite books, Devotion, by Hannah Kent. Mm. Um, Hannah Kent obviously can't 
have had the experience of being an 18th century Prussian woman um, doing a six-month journey uh, on a ship to Australia. Yes, but if we think about burial rites, should it have been written by an Icelander? What do you call Icelandic writer? I don't know. I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. And I know American Dirt by, was it Janine? Cummins, Cummins. Yeah. that was criticised too because um, it was it was from the point of view of uh, Latin ele- well, I'm saying illegal Im- immigrants with you know quotation marks with quotation marks. the microphone <laughs> yeah, that no one can see. Um, but but American dirt was supposed to be um, problematic because it was you know can an American really understand the experience of people from Latin America and what it's what it's like um, when they're a non-immigrant. Um, so is there credit to an author who does try to understand that? Because if you say that, uh, in that example, mm. uh, a, a US-based writer can't write of the immigrant experience, well, isn't it a really good sign that they are trying to get inside the head of an immigrant? They're showing empathy. They're trying to tell the story. And also keeping in mind that um, a, an immigrant from Mexico probably doesn't have nearly the contacts or the ability to get in you know, their work in front of a publisher. At least this is someone who is more ho- high-profile, who can tell a story on behalf of others and, and, and have it heard. But if you're high profile, wouldn't... Sorry, I am dominating the conversation no, a bit. Please do right. jump in. If you're, hi, if you're high profile, wouldn't you want to use your power, I suppose, t- to try and get the story of someone who's really been there and been through that so that they can share their experience and, 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 experience and empower them to tell their story? So they're not allowed to write the story themselves. Well, I, I don't know. I, that's it's an interesting point, don't you think? Yeah. And then I think I always think that it's so much more powerful if you're hearing from the person it's happened to. But I also understand that's not always possible. And you know, if if, if it brings up trauma, for example, yeah. if someone's writing about something absolutely awful, to ask someone to tell their story could be just absolutely horrifying for them. Um, and you know, it, it does bring out you know, as we say, American dirt. You know, it it, it could help people get into the mind of what's happening. Um, and and bring uh, I don't know I suppose bring attention to, to something that's very real and very serious and very important. So so uh, to me I I think that a situation like Hannah Kent or um, Craig Sylvia as well that I think they are a classic example of uh, doing it the right way. If you are going to tell someone else's story, and I I think that writers should be able to tell other people's stories. I I don't think that you should. Um, I think you you almost destroy writing as a craft if you can only tell your story. The whole idea of fiction is that you tell stories that aren't necessarily true or about other people. And if you do something that, along the lines of Craig Sylvie or Hannah Kent, you actually do your research and you engage, in in Craig Sylvie's case, with Mm. um, people who are having that experience Mm. right now, then to me that's quite admirable. And again, using that profile to tell a story that might not otherwise be heard. Mm. I, I agree with you, Kath, to promote... Uh, writers from um, minority groups and who don't have much of an opportunity is a great thing. But I don't think that means an existing writer needs to give up their career or stop writing um, anymore in support of other marginalised groups. Mm. I actually agree with Zach pretty don't much sound so completely. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that any anybody should be able to write from any perspective. I think it can form... Uh, it can and should like form part of your criticism of a work. Mm. Um, maybe that uh, if the writer isn't part of the community that they're representing, you know, maybe that uh, if that's reflected in the work and they didn't do a very good job of, mm. of portraying those communities, that can form part of your criticism. You know, you can say like maybe this, uh, like the Danish girl, I think was criticised for being yeah. That, yeah. the author who um, was cis, and then also the um, a cis man was chosen to play or was cast to play the the trans mm. woman who was the protagonist mm. uh, in the film and in the book. Um, and that was criticised for not being like a very good portrayal of, of the trans experience. Uh, haven't actually read it personally. Um, and I think, but I think that's a valid criticism, you know, like um, how much can a cis person understand of the trans experience? Mm. So I think that can form part of your criticism of those kinds of works. Yeah. But I don't think anyone should just be blanket banned, you know, like from writing those kinds of books. And I think it too kind of leads to this situation that I think is a bit dangerous that where you have to like people have to sort of almost list their credentials like these are all my marginalized identities these are all the groups i belong to that's why i'm allowed to write for that like so i don't know if you guys are familiar with the book um simon versus the homo sapien agenda it's like a young yeah yeah, it's a young adult um 
sort of coming of age story uh, written by a woman called Becky Albertalli. Mm. Is and that to do with the? Is that the Love Simon? Thing? Love Simon. It was it's turned a, into a movie yeah, called yeah, Love yeah. Simon. Um, because it's sort of told through like emails and he signs off Love Simon each time and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, Becky Albertalli is a woman who in the public eye like was married to a man and so many people would just assume that she's straight. Um, and she and the book is about Simon who is gay and kind of dealing with that and, and coming out, um, being outed actually as gay and then having oh. to deal with that situation. Um and people accused her of, you know, like profiting off the LGBT community and not being a member. And she was forced, I guess, to come out as bisexual herself. But she oh. didn't. That's not yeah. something she would have ever undertaken. But she said, "Well, actually, I do feel like I can write about these issues because I'm a member of that community." Yeah. But if she hadn't been criticised for writing from the perspective of someone who is not mm. her, you know, <laughs> um, then she wouldn't have been put in that position. And I think, yeah. you know for those identities that are less visible, like your sexuality or maybe uh, whether you're trans or you're cis or um, maybe if you have particular mental illnesses or things like that, I think it can be really dangerous to just go, well, only, you know, only a, what, only a schizophrenic person or a person who's been depressed can write about mental illness. Well, so should you have to divulge your medical history, mm. you know, as soon mm. as you publish something so that you, you can prove that you're allowed to write this story? I think that's really tricky. Like, I don't think that's a mm. culture that we should be encouraging and then you sort of have to out yourself or are outed as yeah. it almost but i remember the criticism for um the danish girl was that there aren't a lot of roles in hollywood that for, for trans women. for trans mm. women so to be able to um, uh, give the role to someone from that community would have been a, a huge deal and really empowering um, but, but then potentially um the film would not have received nearly as wide a viewing because it wouldn't have had a massive name uh, in the the key role, um, mm. and that's I mean for one thing, um, Hollywood and publishing to a to a degree as well. They're businesses and they're designed to generate profit for for people. Um, one of the reasons they cast um, what was the guy's name Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm sure one of the reasons he was cast was because he was a big name and he's a draw card. People see the film because he's in it. Mm. If you cast um, a trans actor who's not nearly as well known. Um, that may be doing justice to the role, but then you're getting this important, what might, well, I haven't seen it, but what might be an important trans story is not getting as wide an audience. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a, a, a balancing act. Mm. Um, and also, I think it's worth um, getting as many people from uh, minority backgrounds into writing, into Hollywood, into mm. things like that, so that there, is a, there are big name trans actors that you can choose from. Mm. Um, to be able to fill those kind of roles, and that's something that will take time. But as long as the progress is made made towards it, I think I think that's an important thing. Mm. Um, I did just want to mention another problematic book that came up in my research. Uh, it was by an author called Bram Stoker. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, uh, really? Dracula. There actually were some pretty. Are you going to talk about uh, like Romani, like the Roma people? And the mm, that's true. Yeah. Oh no, I wasn't. No. No. Oh, because that is pretty early on in the okay. book. Um, yeah, referring to them using a, a slur that, okay. uh, but many people are not familiar with the fact that that's a slur. Yeah. Not that that I'm, I'm not excusing it by any means, but yeah, like that was used to address them and some stereotypical things about them, you know, being I don't know, nomadic no. and, uh, but Working like it's sort of in a derogatory way, yeah. like yeah, yeah. this yeah. is this if you're part of this community, this is what you look like. This yeah. is yeah. your role. Yeah. This um this particular comment was to do with the fact that uh, female characters are presented either as pure and virginal. Mm. or as evil vampire temptresses with no middle ground. Mm. Well, I mean, that's true. We haven't really seen anything but that. (laughs) Mm. You're either sucking people's bloods or you're going, la, 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 isn't it a beautiful day? Yeah. yeah, Not a lot of complexity with the female characters. There's not a lot of complexity in female characters in many modern books. That's very true. (laughs) Murakami. Guess um, who's back? One of the <laughs> one of the other books I uh, mentioned is To Kill a Mockingbird as well. Oh, um, yeah. Iconic coming of age story that deals with racial injustice, but often criticised for examining racism from a purely white perspective and not giving agency to non-white characters. But Harperley was Caucasian, yes. So was examining it from their worldview. They're saying that um, To Kill a Mockingbird is it looks at racism from a white perspective. It, it, so it's kind of coming back to what I was saying before. They're saying that Harper Lee, in this case, didn't really 
uh, try to understand what it would be like from a black person's, the black character's perspective or to necessarily demonstrate a huge amount of empathy. I mean, uh, you know, there's um, a positive message that comes out of um, How to Kill a Mockingbird, I guess, in the... Uh, in some uh, extent, but also the fact that they haven't given agency to the non-white characters. So the the, the non-white characters effectively are just that caricatures rather mm. than living, breathing characters that have some control over their own destiny. Um, and that kind of leads back to what we were saying before about whether people should be writing from a perspective that and it's funny they don't necessarily understand. And I mean, uh, th- that book is, is heralded as being, you know, yeah. really ahead of its time because yep. it was, you know, I guess showing sympathy yep. uh, to to the pe- to people of color. Yep. And uh, one one of the, this always reminds me a little bit this debate of comedians as well. The issue around comedians. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's it's a very <laughs> it's a very difficult position that comedians I think are often put in because sometimes the the funniest jokes or the jokes that get the most reaction are jokes that are scandalous or wrong or shocking, exactly. Um, My perspective on that has always been, uh, who's the target? Uh, Are you taking easy shots? Are you punching up or down? Exactly, punching up or down. Are you punching down and just making fun of people who have been vilified in the past and you're just doing it for for laughs or are you actually, you know, punching up and hitting targets that can defend themselves and mm. that are in positions of power. John Oliver punches up excellently. You're a fan of John Oliver, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. Ricky Gervais, on the other hand, yeah. I think Ugh. has a bit of a tendency to punch down sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, to me... And so I just don't think he's that funny. Sorry. Maybe that's a controversial <laughs> piece, but <laughs> you're a comedian. That's your job. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, it, it comes down to, uh, I guess, motivation and what are you trying to, to do with your storytelling. And comedians are very much storytellers. Um, you know, they tend to be very short, punchy stories, but mm. they are telling a story. That's and if, if you're just um, regurgitating stereotypes, lazy stereotypes, then that's, uh, I think your motivation is wrong. But if you're using your comedy to send a message to people in power or, mm. or even to show that you're an ally and you understand, you have empathy with um, communities, minority communities. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if you can fashion a joke around that, I think that's probably good. But if, so if you're coming from the right place, I think that's, that's okay. Questioning people's motivations, I think, is a really key mm. part mm. Um, of these things. And you know, I think I don't know if we mentioned on the radio, but when we were talking in the uh, music break about Margaret Atwood yeah. um, potentially having uh, a couple issues around being problematic, um, but also I think Margaret Atwood has done some work to try and address that as well. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, and you know that to me shows that at least they're aware that there's an issue and mm. they're looking inside themselves to figure out whether they've done the right thing or the wrong thing. Mm. Um, people like J.K. Rowling, I don't get that impression at all. I think they're just 100% committed ideologically to the idea that you know that, that a certain thing is wrong. Mm. And then, uh, J- I mean, J.K. Rowling is a good example too because she donates literally millions of dollars yeah. to charities. She lost yes. her billionaire status because yeah. she donated so much to charity. Yeah, yeah, she's done some amazing things, but weirdly, she's chosen this position to. Mm. This is her hill that she's yeah, going to die that's on. That's exactly yeah. right, which I find kind of strange, but. Me too. Anyway, yeah. um, what about a couple of songs? Mm. Yeah, I just want to say one oh before no. we go. <laughs> no, because I think this is, and this is, a, this, I don't know if this is going to link to any other points. So it's a okay. sort of standalone. Sorry, I thought it was a pun. So no, it's not a pun. It's it's a it's an f- interesting fact slash problematic. So you know the movie Heavenly Creatures. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a. Is it a book? Well, it was it's a new. It was filmed in New Zealand anyway. Yeah. Kate, Kate, well, Kate Winslet's in it, I think, mm. and uh, but it's the true story of. Um, uh, two friends in New Zealand uh, and they were really close to each other and then they they murdered their mother. Th- they murdered one of the girl's mm. mothers and they w- it was very scandalous. This all is true and this happened and, and they went to prison. And then when one of them came out of prison, they moved to the UK and now they're a famous crime writer under a pseudonym. Mm. Um, and a, a lot of people, like they've, they've done quite well for themselves and a lot of people don't actually know uh, that they are were a murderer i mean and then there's the whole if you've done the time you know that kind of thing but i find that really interesting as well because you know both of them had to have fake names because they were 15 when they murdered um the mother or thereabouts um but yeah now they're a famous crime writer and i find that really interesting as well and there are people who just refuse to read their writing because you know they were a murderer but you know, well, also they were 15 and, you know, yeah. I mean, there's so much, you know, stuff about culpability and that kind of thing. But I just think that's a really interesting one in terms of thinking mm. about the problematic. 
I think I think there's a good topic that we'll talk about um, after this music. Uh, can you be rehabilitated after doing something like well, that? We're getting into some deep ones yeah. today. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got a lot of time. We to haven't fill, even so. talked about Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get on to Twilight, uh, and then we'll come back and talk about whether you can be rehabilitated once you become problematic. <laughs> this is just getting so deep, isn't it? Yeah. I think we talk about Twilight. This first. is the problem of having a four-hour show. Twilight first, of two. Yeah. and then yeah. well, can. Twilight, can Twilight be rehabilitated. Be rehabilitated? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Think about that. Paperback Writer. Hello and welcome back to Paperback Writer with Catherine, Alex and Zach. You're listening to Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM. I feel like you put on a radio voice then. Oh, this is my regular voice. This is how I always talk. It's pretty creepy. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just pretending to be Dracula. Um, <clears throat> I can't remember what we just listened to. What did we just listen scallops. to? Oh, my son. Oh, scallops. Which was weird right. because when you said it was a song about scallop potatoes, I thought that would be like one line. Literally no. the whole song. The entire song. Yep. It's like about yep. scallop potatoes, right. which I actually <laughs> love. That was from The Herd back in late to, uh, early 2000s, I think. It was a pretty big song on Triple J at the time. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. It's just the, the chorus is a thing that's just really catchy to me, but also the subject matter is a very important one. I feel like <laughs> they missed out on rhyming scallop with wallop. Like, if you don't like scallops, I'll uh, give you a wallop. Yeah. That was just a missed if opportunity. If you don't call them scallops, I'll give you a wallop. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, even potato cakes. Nice, I like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, Midnight Oil, um, King of the Mountain. That's an absolute classic. Um, I love the Oilers. As, uh, Zach's an Oiler. I don't know yeah. if you know. I the fans now. are called Oilers, apparently. <laughs> this is something made that Zach made, Zach made <laughs> a it A few up. episodes it's not, ago. It's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely a thing. Um, so we've been talking about problematic writers and problematic books. Um, what we want to talk about a little bit now is rehabilitation of problematic authors and books. Once you've <laughs> become problematic and you've done something wrong, uh, is there any way back? Um, now, so I have to... If you try to make them go to rehab... <laughs> And yes. they say no, then what? <laughs> yep, Amy Winehouse, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> back from the dead. No, it's Catherine, it's Catherine. Oh, really? I know it's oh, wow. No, I swear, I just saw Amy no. yeah. right next I know. to me. Yeah. My eyeliner's just like hers too. You're working on a beehive there, that's not, yeah. not quite there sort yet. Sort of. <laughs> um, so, I, I, I must admit, I don't know much about this uh, next <laughs> subject, but um, we have an expert Twilight fan here in the studio with us. That's your new title, by yeah. the way, Alex. Alex That's is um, apparently all about mind. all about Twilight, well, you know, which has something to do with vampires, apparently. Something to do with vampires. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting um, topic for yeah, in terms of things that can be rehabilitated, because I'm not sure if you guys um, would be aware, but Twilight sort of had a bit of a like renaissance recently, where like people. I especially, didn't know that. especially uh, women and girls who were like ruthlessly mocked for enjoying Twilight mm. in their adolescence, um, sort of reclaimed it a little bit and went, no, there's there's all right things about this, and you know there are parts that are enjoyable, and yes, there are problematic elements, and we can critique them, but that's true. What novel is that not true of? You know, after what we've well, just yeah, spoken exactly. about, exactly. Um, yeah, I think Twilight is really fascinating, and I think the sort of discourse that is surrounding it is really fascinating too. And I I find it really interesting to think about like, is Twilight like inherently discursive the way that Stephanie Meyer wrote it or is it has it become so because it was such a cultural phenomenon and you know everyone was talking about it like if if it wasn't as popular as it was would it have just been forgotten or yeah I think but it's really interesting for people like myself um, <laughs> can you explain a little bit about what Twilight is well What's it about? Twilight is um, the Twilight saga is four novels long um, and it kind of chronicles Edward and Bella's uh, romantic relationship um bella is the human protagonist and edward is the vampire love interest um who is like called to her blood specifically so he doesn't drink the none of the cullens um that's his family group um drink human blood but you say cullens cullens that's one of my family names oh is it no not cohen's no cullen oh really oh my gosh maybe you're part vampire maybe yeah a bit of heritage nothing (laughs) 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 sorry no that's all right um and he's drawn to they uh, don't yeah. drink blood. You were saying sorry. Yes. Um. So they actually they make a joke in the book and in the movie actually that they're vegetarian vampires because they only drink uh, animal blood as opposed to drinking human blood. <laughs> <laughs> um. But he's like called so strongly to Bella's blood. He's fascinated by her. Um. Like sh- she smells delicious basically, and he really wants to eat her. And it's very challenging to him, who's sort of taken this uh, vow to not 
give in to his nature to be, you know, to destroy and to kill. And mm. um, Also, they're at high school together. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> okay, I yes. See. It's a young adult romance. <laughs> it is. Teenage yes. vampires. That's Were they lab partners? Yes. Of they always are, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> they always yeah. are lab partners. Yep. <sighs> yep. Um, and there's also the added thing of uh, Edward can read minds. I don't know if you were aware of that, no, mm. but uh, he can read everybody's mind but Bella's and so she's right. incredibly fascinating to him and you kind of, you do find out why later in the series, so no spoilers for this uh, series that's been around since 2008. <laughs> 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 um, but I just find it really interesting, like I think um, a lot of the criticism that was levelled at it had to do with the fact that it was popular with girls. I think there's a lot of things mm. that um, okay. are unfairly hated, like just such vitriolic hatred you know, criticism is totally fine. We have just spent the past two and a half hours criticizing things, basically. Mm. Um, you know, um, you're not going to find me saying don't criticize things. But, you know, the kind of hatred that mm. there was for Twilight and the mockery of, of people that enjoyed it, I think was, yeah, mostly to do with the fact that it appealed to women. And I think there's still kind of this attitude of like, well, Kath and I have spoken before about how we don't really gravitate towards romance books. Mm. Um, but I don't have any disdain for them but there are some people that really see them as uh, not not literature or not mm. you know not well written or not good because they kind of a appeal to that yeah female demographic I guess and I think um, there's just a lot of interesting stuff in Twilight I've it's is, there, is there are there any issues with representation of the female characters in Twilight well that's the thing is that there's a lot of um, kind of disagreement about whether Twilight is feminist or anti-feminist because okay. the entire plot is really driven by Bella's desires. Uh, Bella wants to be changed into a vampire and Edward has this thing where, you know, he doesn't want to change her because um, he thinks it is taking away her soul, basically. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, does have the power in that situation It is <coughs> denying her, you know, what she wants ultimately, but the whole story is her negotiating how she can get this thing that she wants, mm. you know, and, and sort of arguing her point to him. Like, she's very, in their relationship, she's very assertive and she's mm. very, um, yeah, she's constantly negotiating these things and, and it is something that, yeah, it's not just, she's not complacent. She's not like, oh, fine, well, you won't make me a vampire, you know, I'll deal with that. She kicks up a real fuss about it and I think um, that's really interesting and just the idea of the whole plot being sort of driven by like uh, the female character's desires and what she wants and yeah, I think that is really interesting. I think there are some elements of it that are a bit problematic in terms of uh, maybe like gender roles and things like that but, mm. you know, what, what can you not say that about? Well, and I know, I don't know about the books but I know in the movies there was a big, I don't know, co controversy about indigenous... Uh, like the Native American, yeah. So um, the I guess another main appeal of Twilight for a lot of people is that there's a love triangle. So between Edward mm -hmm. and Bella, and then the third corner of the triangle <laughs> is um, Jacob, Jacob Black, and he is Native American. He belongs to the Quileute tribe. And the thing is that the Quileutes are a real yeah. uh, indigenous, like Native American tribe. Um, and a lot of the law and L-O-R-E law and, and things like that that are written about in the book um, are true. Are, are, you know, like um, they have a belief that some of their elders were descended from wolves and things like that. So, spoiler, Jacob is a werewolf. What? <laughs> what? Um, you know, but some of that is, is really taken from the tribe's um, actual beliefs and law and histories. Okay. Um, but then there are other things that she kind of like transposed on top of it that mm. are questionable. And also the fact that the Quilly tribe didn't see, you know, a scent of the prophets. I was about yeah. to say. There's, uh, th I think they still actually, um, this fundraiser is still going, but a lot of their sort of uh, tribal lands uh, and like artifacts and just their population, I guess, of their tribe is located in a flood zone and they're trying to move to higher ground. So it's the Quilly mm. Move to Higher Ground project, um, which, you know, Stephanie Meyer could pay off and have and her net worth yeah. not uh, impacted whatsoever and hasn't. You know, things like that that are, yeah, a bit difficult to grapple with as someone who, like, enjoys Twilight, I'll admit it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just for the record, yeah. Alex is wearing a Twilight jumper today. So I thought I would dress the part. Yeah, I thought I fair would, enough. Yeah. Yeah, um, take pride yeah. in your love of teenage <laughs> vampire yeah. novels. Um, that's the problem with uh, vampire novels, though. There's always so much at stake. Ah. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> yeah. Just don't stake it to the heart. Don't you'll be stake fine. Stake it to the heart. Stakes uh, are high. 
just did that one. Thank you. you just, <laughs> but you've basically copied my pun no, in a slightly it. different yeah, exactly. variation. Mm. Slightly different. Very different. <sighs> anyway. Um, something else I just wanted to briefly talk about on this subject is impact of social media on uh, the idea of problematic books and authors because um, J.K. Rowling and Roald Dahl, I think, are interesting examples in this uh, situation because Roald Dahl obviously never had to deal with social media and yeah. the outcry that can come from um, saying one wrong thing. I mean, in Roald Dahl's case, it was a lot of wrong things. But <laughs> um, Whereas J.K. Rowling at the moment, if she posts something on Twitter, within the space of 24 hours, literally billions of people may have seen it. Mm. Um, and we know that social media is very effective at generating outrage. Um, does social media sometimes go a bit far with these kind of things when it comes to uh, some of our favourite authors? Is, um, mm. is it appropriate to use social media to apologise for these things? Mm. Well, I mean, the president of the ex-president of the USA, like Donald Trump, used to use it to like announce policies and policy, stuff, yeah. right? <laughs> and he's a well-known writer as well. He's written um, three or four books That's at least, true. I think. And he sells steak. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's true. Yep, yep. Thank you, Kath. Yeah, it's well. We were, it ties into what we were talking about in one of the music breaks earlier. Is that um, nowadays you don't just read a book or watch a movie. You think about the artist who created that, and there's almost like a cult of personality around them, and and you know they have a lot of fame in and of themselves from being in that position. You know, like an author yeah. becomes a celebrity, and and we're interested in their lives and what they have to say. Um, whereas I don't think that w I mean possibly to an extent, but I don't think that was such a thing. Prior to social media, we were a step removed from whoever was publishing these books or, mm. you know, writing them and whoever was producing these movies. And, you know, we just sort of looked at the end product and there wasn't so much paid attention to, you know, the comments or the beliefs um, that were held by mm. the people who mm. had a hand in making it. And I think that's really changed how we interact with media too. And there's a lot of people who kind of seek to, like, almost achieve ideological purity they're like well i have the least problematic taste in media and <laughs> I, I actually think that that's not as helpful as as it might seem it's a bit problematic if you ask me a bit problematic <laughs> um i think i think about i mean again we come back to the the george orwell comment we were talking about before you know and um uh, it was down and out in paris and london mm. where um he draws a short caricature essentially um of uh, a jewish man and it's definitely it, it's very awkward to read and it's uncomfortable um if that book had been released now uh, and that line had been put on social media, um, it's pretty likely that George Orwell would have been cancelled. Um, if that had been the case, we would never have had 1984 or Animal Farm, which were written a long time after that happened. I don't believe in cancelling. As in, I don't believe that it's a real thing and I okay. think the fear-mongering around it is a bit silly. But I just think, what's the difference between someone being cancelled and effectively... Like, it's a boycott. It's people Market going, well, forces. I don't like, yeah, mm. what that person has said or done mm. and I'm going to boycott their content in the future. And, like, don't we have a right to do that? And oftentimes these people that are cancelled or, you know, there's like a hashtag trending on Twitter for a couple of days, it's forgotten about the next week <laughs> because they had the money and the means to put out something else. And mm. if people like it, then those comments are forgotten about. You know, when it's like a really egregious crime, like I guess you could say Harvey Weinstein was cancelled quote unquote but you know that to me is just actual justice being served it's not you know it's not just a, a cancellation or a social media thing you know that's when there was like real life sort of tangible consequences but I think as it applies to most people when they talk about being cancelled well people are just boycotting their stuff because they don't like you and they have every <laughs> right to do that yeah. you know I yeah I don't know it's, it's the very essence of market forces to me this idea of cancel culture because mm. if you're selling something that's dodgy or defective people don't buy it oh no that was a bit free market of me wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> but i mean that's that's kind of what cancel culture is like if you do something people don't like then they're that's going to choose not to consume your product yeah that's the way it's always been it's, it's the same case for major corporations as mm. it is for for writers and filmmakers mm. it's or just that it's far more public now yeah. and accessible because of social media and, and the proliferation of all those things it's like everyone has access to it and can make their decisions based on what they see mm. so yeah or, or they you know are forced to apologize and or at least seem 
seem mm. a little bit. I apologise if anyone has been offended, offended by exactly. my comments. Because I was thinking about it's that the too. The worst apology. The notes app apology. Yeah. Because I, I, I was <laughs> back to Rod Dahl. <laughs> I'm still heartbroken. <laughs> but I, I, they, he was intervi- interviewed by a newspaper and they challenged him and he was like, no, this is what I believe. This is mm. it, you know. And I know that was, you know, the 80s or what have you, but... That's still, that's pretty late. It, it is it is late, but I, I was thinking, you know, would George Orwell apologise? And I don't know that he would, you know, beca- mm. because of the I type of person I he was. I don't agree with that. I think, I think that he would. I think he would accept that he'd had... Um, written that inappropriately mm, because yeah. it's not so it's it is a very rare feature of his work that, is that true. kind of thing it's yeah so maybe not and that was one of his earlier works as well and that was a time when anti-semitism was absolutely rife in mm. in europe and in the uk on the left and the right of politics um and then he ended up writing books um you know railing against the sorts of cultures that uh enabled anti-semitism to become massive um, issues. You mm. know, this, Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany were effectively anti-Semitic uh, states in a lot of ways, uh, and he was passionate about um, writing against those. Um, one one of the, the things that I just want to ask you a question about as well, and this is a very uh, much related to what we're talking about right now, is it fair for us to criticise authors who can't respond? So mm. we can criticise J.K. Rowling and people like that because they have an opportunity to then come back and say, well, you can criticise me, but this is what I believe in, uh, and I believe in it for this reason. Um, Roald Dahl, George Orwell, um, you know, all those Dr. Seuss, we, we can criticise them, but they are not in a position to defend themselves. I, is that fair? Are we so okay to criticise So because someone is dead, them? they should be exempt from criticism? No, I don't, think, I don't think that's true. I think they should be allowed to be criticised, but... Um, it's it's kind of a one-way street though isn't it that we can criticize them and they don't have a an ability to to respond or to justify the reasons that they you know they they wrote a certain thing or drew a certain illustration um is it is it something that maybe we need to consider when we do consume that content that there's as opposed to people who are alive now and can directly rebut any criticism that we have i mean J.K. Rowling would probably rebut it, and I'd still say, "Well, you're wrong." Sure, but at least <laughs> at least she has the opportunity to do so. Whereas Roald Dahl can't come back to you and say, "Well, this is why I wrote those things, and I wrote it because of A, B, and C." And I'm not saying that there's a valid justification for why he wrote the things he did, but at least he would have had an opportunity to say, "This is why I did it." Um, I don't know. This, I, mm. I agree. I with think you. it's interesting, but I I don't think. Like criticism is only valid when it's a discussion. Yeah. Sometimes it's just you espousing your opinion, and maybe it's a discussion with other people who agree with you, and, and yeah. you're not going to be engaging with the person that you're criticizing, like on a direct level. Sometimes it's just not feasible. I mean, I don't think J.K. Rowling is tuning in to Paperback Writer, unfortunately. What? She, she could learn a few things. Hey, we've I got think. 23 subscribers. Yeah, she may well be one she of them. She may well be, be one, one of them. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. Yep. Robert Galbraith. It's, it's her alter ego that's listening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can we just have a quick discussion about that? Pseudonyms and alter egos. Um, what about them? Well, how do you feel about them? As a uh, voracious consumer of books, how do you feel about people writing under names that are not their own? Is there anything deceptive to that? And particularly if they're choosing a name that might be different from their cultural background mm. or maybe they're a different mm. gender, for example, J.K. Rowling and Robert Galbraith. It's funny, is that problematic? When we were getting books um, for the shop the other day, we, we saw one by a crime writer, mm. Charlie someone. Mm. And I thought, is that a male writer? Is that a female writer? And, and, and mm. I feel like it was deliberate. It, it might not be. It could be mm. coincidental. But I know that there's a sort of a, a trend in female crime writers at the moment. And they're very, I, I would probably say, much more popular than male crime writers. And so I wondered if it was deliberately ambiguous, mm. uh, you know, to, to maybe sell more books. Mm. And, and I think that's really interesting. Is that okay? Is there a problem with that? That specifically? Well, like misleading, misleading pseudonyms, I guess. Yeah. But is is it? I mean, you could argue it's not misleading. Well, look at George Eliot. You know, name they chose. And George Eliot had that pseudonym because you know, as a man, as a woman, you wouldn't get published. So, Mm. what about Robert Galbraith then? Why? Well, wasn't published under a male? I think that's more because she wanted to escape the name of J.K. Rowling. You know what I mean? Like. I mean, she's obviously still a very celebrated author and everything, but there's a lot of pushback specifically 
against her now yeah. more, more so than before and I feel like it was a way maybe for her to publish things and escape the fact that it was her. Do that you know what I mean? The fact that she uses a pen name completely makes sense yeah. and it's a, you know, a different genre as well but um, why choose a male name mm. and not a female name? Surely, I mean, I can understand George Eliot, especially back in those days. Mm. That kind of makes sense to me because you didn't really have access to publishers um, or even people might not necessarily buy Take your you book. seriously, exactly. Exactly, because you um, have a female name. But um, I, is there a need for that these days? Though? I would argue that um, I think it can be useful when an author, like authors have a right to privacy, as yep. we all do, and I think it can be really useful in those situations. Um, I think that doesn't really apply to J.K. Rowling because... Not that I follow her on Twitter, but <laughs> I, that's right. I sent that meme to you about her, yeah, yeah, about her Twitter account recently, and she actually has in her bio, um, sometimes known as Robert Galbraith. So you know, there's no um, illusion that it's for privacy reasons. There, if she's come out and admitted, mm. I am Robert Galbraith. But um, I think like, um, do you know much about Stephen King writing under a pseudonym? No, no. So he, um, after he'd published like Carrie and Misery, so some of his earlier ones that were really huge. Um, and terrifying. And terrifying, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was interested to know, like, because he was selling so well and he was so prolific, like mm. he was uh, writing an enormous amount and publishing things, you know, like every year sort of thing. And he wanted to see if people would enjoy and read his books if Stephen King, the name, wasn't attached to it. Yep. So he wrote under a pseudonym, um, Richard Backman. He ah. wrote, he published quite a few books under that pseudonym and they were like reasonably popular, but mm. not anywhere not the near level. the same extent. And it was a bit of like a social experiment. Mm. He wanted to see if, if people actually enjoyed his writing and, and his craft and the stories that he was telling. Um, or if it was just sort of, oh, it's the new king, we've got to get it, you know? Like, yeah. How would yeah. you feel if he published under the name Carol Jones, for example? Indifferent. Yeah. yeah. Even though it's a female name? So what? Well, I think it's more, there might be more, well, I mean, I'm thinking about the trend of, of female writers. So, you're, you, you know, people are more likely to buy the book. Although I think people are more likely to buy the book if it was Stephen King, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> than Carol Jones. Yeah. 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 I could do Stephen, like, with a PH. Or and you know, or a V, just mix it up. So it doesn't matter what name you choose to write under. You could choose if if you were a, uh, a white British writer, you could choose an African name, no, that's a Nigerian okay. name to write under. No, that's not okay. Why is that not okay? But it's okay to use a female name if you're a male well, writer. It's, it's appropriation. It's just. How is that different from using a female name if you're a male writer, though? Is that mm. not appropriation? I suppose it is appropriation of. What another of womanhood gender. of gender? I yeah. don't think that you can, because I don't really see gender as being. I just think it doesn't really fit with my idea personally of gender being a social construct. I wouldn't see it as something that is uh, tangible and can be appropriated. Isn't because that the same with race, though. Are well? drag queens appropriating womanhood? That's mm. a good question. Yeah, I would say no. I would say that it's a social commentary on gender, all gender being a performance. And I think there's lots of feminist literature that uh, examines that and looks at, you know, you don't really... Uh, I think it was Simone de Beauvoir who said you're not born a woman but you become one. Mm. Um, don't quote me on that if I'm wrong. Mm. <laughs> but it's it's about, you know, learning to present that way and to perform the gender that you've been assigned at birth and what people have told you to do. I don't think it's uh, something innate about you and so I don't think that it can be... And I don't think that it's real, you know. I don't think that... <laughs> there's a gene that tells you because you are born with specific body parts, you know, that you like the colour pink or, you know. Mm. So I don't think that can really be appropriated, whereas I think culture is a bit more tangible than that and can therefore be appropriated. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's fair. just my feelings on sure. it. Mm. Um, we're probably getting close to the end of the show. Is there anything else in particular you want to talk about, book-related? No, just that I've been reading Drop Beer by ah, Evelyn Araluen yes. and it's really good. The winner of the Stella Prize. The, the yeah. poetry and mm -hmm. the short story. Well, I, it's all poetry, really. It's yeah. so good. And I was going to talk about it, but then I forgot. So I'll bring it next week and talk about it because it's, it's, I'm loving it. It's, I really enjoyed it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a... Bought it from Rosie Ravelston. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. I've heard they're pretty great. Yeah. I've heard yeah. they're really they're humble good. as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, really, really keen to, to keep reading that. Yeah. It's really good. Excellent. Mm. Well, just a reminder to everyone that our Regenesis competition 
um, ends next week on the 15th of August. So that's a competition for local Blue Mountains writers and illustrators and artists as well. Um, we're running that uh, in conjunction with the Blue Mountains Creative Arts Network. So uh, you can, we're, we're looking for entries of short story, uh, a poem or an illustration drawing piece of art. They're the three different categories. Uh, the winner of each category will receive $200 um, and also uh, a, pro a major profile in the Regenesis anthology that is, will be published uh, shortly after the competition ends. Uh, you'll also be invited to a, um, a, an event that we're doing at Winter Magic with Rosie Ravelston Books and Blue Mountains Creative Arts Network where we'll be having a chat to the winners of each of those three categories um, and helping to promote their work as well. Um, if you go to the um, BM Can website or to the Rosie Ravelson Books website, you can get more information on that. Only five days left. Um, and uh, I think we mentioned previously as well that um, our Mid-Mountains Poetry Night is on um, uh, next week as well. I think the 17th yeah. of August Wednesday. on I'm a Wednesday night at 20 Mile Hollow in Woodford, a great little cafe down there. Mm. Um, and um, a big shout out to 20 Mile Hollow. Yeah, we uh, love them. Yeah, great um Great little uh, cafe, that one. A little hidden gem in the mountains. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Mm. Yeah, what songs are we wrapping up with? Yeah, what do we want to? What do we want to finish off with? A couple of songs. I think we should do the uh, Listomania. Oh yeah. Give that a go. And what about Build Me Up Buttercup? Yeah, sounds. good. I think that's a good one to end on. Yeah. Done. Okay. Let's do it. So Phoenix Listomania, and Build Me Up Buttercup by I don't even know who it's by. The Foundation. The Foundation. The Foundation. Yep. Apparently, yeah. There you go. Cool. Thank you for listening. This is Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM. This is Zach, Kath and Alex. And you've been listening to Paperback Writer. Thank you. And we'll see you next week.